Come on, let's go. By shortwave broadcast, direct from important overseas capitals, we are about to broadcast this moment in our history. Hello and welcome to the History Workshop Podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Today we embark on episode three of our four-part podcast series on queer activisms, in which historians, performers, educators, and activists take a deep dive into existence and resistance in past and present queer life. Our topic today is public history and the queer archive. And to introduce the discussion and our guests, I'll hand over to our presenter, History Workshop's Laura Forster. Hello, everyone. This uh, episode of Queer Activisms is about LGBTQ public history, uh, about queer histories and queer methodologies outside of academia. It's also about the queer archive and how we find and record queer histories in the past and in the present. The podcast series as a whole, of course, coincides with LGBTQ plus history month. So it seems a pertinent moment to consider how queer public history is narrated, preserved and consumed and, and to ask who it serves. Queer public history can can celebrate, affirm, uh, and importantly, preserve and perpetuate queerness. But queer public histories can often also uh, reproduce the erasure of subjects deemed unsavory or unwieldy and can enforce the categorization and sanitization of the subjects with which it deals. So to guide us then through this thorny or somewhat thorny subject, (laughs) I'm joined by two guests who are both very much engaged with the work of celebrating, archiving, complicating, scandalizing, and protecting queer histories. First, uh, Ajamu X. Ajamu is an artist, scholar, archive curator, and radical sex activist. He's perhaps best known for his uh, fine art photography, which explores same-sex desire and the black male body, and for his work as an archivist uh, of black queer histories. In 2005, Ajamu, along with Tofa Campbell, founded the Ruckus Federation Archive, a black, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender cultural archive, uh, which is now deposited at the London Metropolitan Archives. We're also joined by EJ Scott. Uh, EJ is a heritage curator and has worked on queering numerous heritage projects uh, at the Tate, at Brighton Museums, and at the National Trust, to name just a few. EJ is also the founder of the Museum of Transology, uh, and the Museum of Transology is the UK's most significant collection of objects representing trans, non-binary and intersex people's lives. So uh, welcome EJ and Ajamu, thank you very, very much for being here today. I'm very excited to hear what you both have to say uh, about all this. As I say, I think we'll start, you know, I mentioned this podcast release, of course, coincides with LGBTQ History Month. So I wondered what what LGBTQ History Month means to both of you, um, you know, if indeed it means anything at all. What does it mean? So maybe we'll start Start with the jamming. Go for it. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay, <laughs> I I think for me, I'm LGBT History Month is I'm very important. I think it's I'm key that we I'm acknowledge different kinds of queer histories. I think for me, it's very important that we also center black and brown and queer histories within LGBT History Month. And with that said, (laughs) I actually haven't really engaged with it personally for a few years. And I'm partly, it's because I'm, I don't find it sexy. (laughs) I think for me, I think, yes, we can talk about politics and representation and visibility, but I don't find it sexy. I don't find it that radical no more. 
and that's due to who is actually putting on LGBT events across the UK. And then sometimes I think for some people, it is just an exercise because they have to get something done. And then you, you I could tell someone actually, if I get a call on the 29th of January to do something in LGBT History Month, it's quite clear that you haven't thought about diversity and inclusion. So, but actually, that's my frustration. And uh, some of us call it I'm, I'm February is I'm Black Gay Employment Month. <laughs> and I'm basically equally October is Black Employment Month. So, but actually, I think that, yes, we need to mark these moments. And also, there is a danger of just putting everything within this one month. is because actually a lot of it is I'm just not that interesting across the board so then once again yes we need it and i'm saying and uh, it, it's it's not radical enough for me it's not mischievous enough for me it's not sexy enough for me so um, that's my position on lgbt history month dj then what are you saying um that i i couldn't agree more that you know i think i think we saw this starting ajami when we had the 50 year anniversary of partial decriminalization of homosexuality and every museum and art gallery around the country went, oh my God, we're crap at diversity, quick, let's put on an exhibition about gay lives. And then, you know, what I always say is pop-up exhibitions, you know what they do? They pop down, yeah? And then they're not there anymore. And what actually is the footprint on the collection? What's the footprint that is the legacy in the building? Are we welcome when it's not February anymore? I think, I think there's two major issues for me. One is that for a start, I mean, I, I really, from personal experience, think that the amount of whitewashing and the amount of ciswashing at these ongoing events is absolutely unacceptable and I can't actually believe it's still going on so this month alone I have turned down four gigs because I refuse to be on an all white all cis panel right so I'm putting myself out of work because you're exactly right this is high employability month particularly when you need a token trans person who started a collection yeah so I'm turning down work that's really actually very important for me and stepping down on the grounds that there aren't any black or brown speakers on them, right? And that just has to be done because it's got to be lived politics. It's got to be. And as far as I'm concerned, the fight against transphobia is the fight against racism because when we colonized India, we colonized gender. When we colonized Africa, we colonized it, right? And so, and so I, I, I just can't see that these two issues can be separated out. But I think a consequence of the makeup of the panels that we're seeing and the events we're seeing and the institutionalization of LGBTQ History Month, which doesn't even include intersex, you know, the actual yeah. month itself doesn't even mention intersex people. What, we're, what we are doing as a consequence of these makeups is that we're creating a queer cabin right, we're, we're, we're canonizing queer history by going, here's the famous roll call, here's the, yeah. here's the right, we're, we're looking back and we're just absolutely, you know, I always come back to my little catchphrase, are we queering museums or museuming what's queer? 
how can these events be queer and radical if we can't even get a black speaker on them? You know, yeah. like if we if we still are at the stage where we have to remind people that you need someone trans there because there's a thing that's gender diversity, that you still need to mention that intersex people exist. Like, how can we be so far behind yeah. in these conversations yeah. still? Yeah, and I'm and I'm and I'm plus also I think for me kind of that takes labor to constantly to knock your head against institutions that want to be diverse. I think that they do want to be inclusive actually. However, in some cases they don't know how. And then also in some cases they're just lazy and they haven't done the homework. Yeah, so hence so yeah, so even just lay it at institutions <laughs> either though i think this is happening at in in panels that are i agree with that we I, can all make podcasts you know now that we can all do zoom meetings online we're seeing it at grassroots level as well i totally agree with you i totally agree with you yeah i think this is really important yeah. well issue on the two things multiple things on the one hand as you said january this idea of like an lgbt history month it's limited and it's also can be a bit like it's 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 the bland end of queer often it's not you know sexy or radical and as you say ej it's also yeah extremely kind of safe it still feels safe because people are, are still refusing to kind of they'll let you know queerness in the door in as far as it's still palatable to a certain extent and you know and i think that leads maybe in some ways to to two sort of points is is whether and, and I think we've already found it in the way that we're speaking that slight difference between LGBT you know histories and thinking about queer history and I think maybe what I sometimes think when I encounter this idea of the sort of history month is that you know the LGBT public history is somehow kind of about education like sort of educating those who can't won't or haven't yet understood you know how fundamental queer histories are to broader national and international narratives or whether queer public history of archiving queerness and making that accessible is a way of celebrating queerness in defiance of those broader narratives and histories. So in a way, maybe that's, I don't know if you agree, maybe that's a kind of difference there of whether we're talking about a queer history that pushes back against those or an LGBT history that those institutions are willing to include, but still kind of on their terms. I'm, I just think that actually a lot of queer politics is no less conservative. Just because it's queer, it doesn't mean that it's radical or unpolitical. I just think that actually a lot of queer politics actually masquerade itself is because it's conservative politics. So then actually, I don't think it's about either or. So then actually, I think for me that, and then because the queer itself is because it's locked into a binary framework. Actually, I'm trying not to kind of romanticized kind of queer back in the day that was not mischievous and dirty whatever but i'm saying actually it did something very different to how i see queer now and then because actually queer now is like kleenex tissue paper everybody's queer i'm like wasn't well actually if then queer is then something that's different right you actually know what makes it different <laughs> and then that's the thing and so, and so really for me it's about kind of know what is queer doing as a politic, right? Yeah, not as an identity, but as a politic or or a philosophy. And queer, I've also got to queer queer as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I I couldn't agree more, I mean, Like the I, I think we're fresh with digital 
curation, right? I think it still is a field that's new. And I think we're all learning on the hop because of of the COVID situation that we're in. And I'm really interested in it as a form that can be queered. Where can we go with it? Like I haven't been to any, um, you know, Zoom dark rooms, (laughs) like back in the eighties, you know, like- I have. (laughs) I have. (laughs) Yeah, you have, of course you have. (laughs) Well, that's interesting. That's interesting. And maybe there's something in there though about, about, about transness as well and where it fits and where bodies fit online and in the digital visual world and and what spaces are considered safe and how can they but again I think they're just conversations that that can happen and so still haven't given up the other thing that I'm interested in with digitizing queerness is 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 disrupting borders using it to its full potential to have international conversations in a way that we couldn't before to start thinking about radical political fightbacks that are internationally driven, you know, so so not not necessarily trying to fight everyone's fight with the one 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 you know tank, but but actually thinking about how we can learn more about each other across borders as a really serious proactive attempt to disrupt populism, to disrupt, you know, the rise of nationalism to, you know, and and I'm not seeing international protest happening in queer circles in the same way as mass actions, like they could, for example. And so that's 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 where I'm on the same page as you. How do how can our queer politics, um, identity politics, some identity politics, right? Because everyone's queer nowadays that's that's and that's okay for me that's okay yes but what i want to see is direct action what i see is uh, you know what i want to see happen through these digital mediums is to use them to their full potentials to organize and disrupt you know i totally agree with you and also i think there's, there is a question around you can queer also do that work mm. And then once I was getting a queer might not be able to do the kind of work that we think it should be doing. So I'm basically, I am not saying that we don't think about queer as kind of, I mean, you know, I, you know, these things can happen. But sometimes we put these, you know, this burden on this thing trying to do a particular kind of work and it can't do the work. Yeah. So then once again, we have to kind of rethink because, you know, queer is so loaded with identity, period. Yeah, and then actually, then you know that's the problem. It still, it still brings in this Trojan horse of identity. Yeah, and it gets locked down. And so, really, actually, it's on how how can we see queer more as an energy or queer as punk or it's it's doing something else. That's the thing about queerness that I think I'm excited by. I think it operates differently. I think yeah, I think you both touched on something really important there. This idea of a queer politic that goes beyond a kind of queer identity or a kind of, and, that, and therefore queer history is something that moves beyond just a kind of, um, you know, a sort of lineage of queerness, but also a, a, um, something that, that is that has a politic. I mean, Lee Edelman said, you know, that queer can never define an identity. It can only ever disturb one, right? And I think that's really important that the project of queerness to me is about disturbing all sorts of binaries, be they to your sexuality, gender, etc. which leads me, I think, to... Well, I want to ask a little bit more oh, about some of... Yeah. Oh, sorry. sorry. But then the thing is that also 
queerness, this queer nursing cannot be represented neither. Oh, and actually, once again, it's how do we then, then talk about queerness as that thing that cannot be represented, but it is sense or felt. And then that then means that you have to then engage with a queer politic that's more sensuous or it keeps the senses front and centre. Well, that's a, hold that thought, that, well, that leads me really nicely into what I want to ask you both about, in some ways, some of the more kind of practical work you're doing about this, because I think this is where we come up with a problem. It's like as soon as we try and name or pin down queerness, it's already lost its queerness. And so it, it becomes a difficult task in terms of archiving queerness, obviously, right? So, you know, in queer in some ways, by definition, I guess, is, is sort of anti-archive. You know, as we've just said, queer theory argues for expansive, indeterminate meanings of sexuality and gender. And I think it's quite a utopian project in that way. But how then can we archive queer histories? Because, you know, archives require categories and, and queerness often, you know, really should it in some ways reject categories. But the archive and the museum still dominate, as we know, as you both know very well, you know, the archive continues to dictate the histories we produce, the stories we tell. So how do we as queer people make archives? How do, you make, um, how do we make ourselves known and leave traces for others without capitulating to precisely those sort of institutional norms or boundaries um, that, that queerness or, the, or the, a utopian queer type of queerness rejects? So I guess, yeah, I'm asking maybe in some ways to reflect on some of those questions with regard to Ruckus or the Museum of Transology or ways in which you approach these questions when you're trying to actually do this work, you know? So I'm, I'm sorry, the last time I saw AJ was at the Tate at the event. And then basically I, I made a statement that actually... I'm going to make a T-shirt of it. <laughs> <laughs> I actually made a statement that actually our nipples and dicks and vaginas and asses are already archives because they hold memories. Yeah, right. And because then the, the archive is then a rhyme container of memories, it means that we have to then rethink that the archive is then not something that you go to, but it's what you already bring with you. And then that then shifts the very notion of, of the archive in the old kind of 19th century kind of things that go to die in the archive, whereby I think that things go to live. And so actually, I think that actually, if we start with the black body or the black queer body as I'm embodied, it's an Aram archive, it then shifts the conversation. And because you and them always, and because I'm, I think for me, there is always a resistance to always to think that the only way that we can talk about the archive or queer archive or around queer histories is in relation to the institution. It's, in a re relation to this, this public facing work, I'm saying actually there's other ways that we can reconfigure this thing called the archive that actually doesn't lose sight of the body and touch, archival pleasure. I think for me also, it's how do we talk about, I mean, queer histories in terms of the sonic, <laughs> just in terms of sound, for instance, or around queer histories in terms of tastes or smells. I, I think that we have to have other kinds of conversations outside of the institution, the queer archivers' resistance, the queer archive as rebellion. I think that there's other ways that we have to talk from in the archive, actually. It, because actually, I think that a lot of the a lot of the dialogues actually talk from outside the archive. It talks from outside the very thing that it's saying that it's talking about. And so then once again, I don't think that the the the, the archive is passive. I think that it it also does what it does. And so basically, actually, if then I touch the archive, yeah, the archive also touches me. That's a different conversation. 
and I think kind of that's where I like to see and we begin to think about that thing that's far more ephemeral or nebulous or more nuanced than this big clunky idea about archive, institution, history, uh, lineage. I'm saying mm -hmm. actually there is something that I think that we're missing here as I part of the conversation. Stuart Hall says it quite well, doesn't he? He talks about the archive as like, you know, the archive is for the is about the past, but it's also about the future. And when we're creating archives, it's never finished and it's always changing. And it's always about people ahead of us who might encounter this. And also what we're, what we're encountering are people of the past, but that when we're in it, we're like, as you say, we're kind of creating ripples as yes. you step into the archive. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. I, I mean, but in some ways, I, I mean, I totally agree. But I mean, I'm a historian by training and obviously you know, looking at the history of the 19th century. So when you're already, you, you know, the, the prevalence of kind of, or the, the idea of history as this kind of written documentary evidence um, and trying to find ways to, to, to hear the silences, to find the gaps in the past, reading archives in a different way. But it makes me so excited to think that now we have the potential because we can capture so much more of those things you just said, Ajami, you know, about sounds, about smells, about bodies. I actually think we can, we can kind of, uh, allow those to speak in a way that was more difficult for you know if, if, when I'm looking at the 19th century so I really I have this dream that you know there'd be historians you know in 100 years time thinking about now and they might be able to capture some of that better but then that still comes down to how, how we how we do the kind of logistical practical job of sort of collating that or is that not necessarily the point I mean EJ what do you think in terms of your work with the Museum of Transology how are you trying to capture those the, all the ways all the kind of different dimensions of transness how do you do that and, and do you think it's possible maybe it's also a question um it's it, it's a loaded question isn't it so so i think i think to start at the beginning there's some really practical things that are central to the politics behind the mot and that is the fact that every single person is the curator of their own story yes. right so our collecting policy is that we collect everything there's not a silverware collection. There's not a, no, it's that you have complete and utter agency to choose the object that you submit and you write the label according to your words in your handwriting with your language without any censoring. There is no top-down curation of it. The only curation that happens with it is the arrangement of the objects when they're put on display, but there isn't within the collecting policy. But I mean, it, there's something that happened as a consequence of that, of course, and that is that by when I've looked at it much more closely, I've realised that by using the little brown tags that we've used for people to write their stories on, which in one way is very accessible and it enables them to, to handwrite, etc. What's actually happened by putting a Museum of Transology label over the top of it and giving them a small space to write in is that inadvertently, I've created a collection that's single narrative because there's only so much space for it to go on and it's under the trans umbrella. And so what's happened is I haven't enabled people to have conversations about intersectionality, right? And therefore the kick on effect of that is that it has driven 
people to partake who are more confident with the process of being in a museum or archiving. So even though I was deliberately trying to work outside the museum, I was deliberately trying to work outside the, outside the institution. It was a, a proactive way of protesting about erasure through occup occupation that was, that was driven by objects that could then be inserted in, you know? So it was like peaceful protest through, through the means of collecting and collective activism, collectivism, if you like. But in actual fact, there are processes that are involved in building archives when it comes down to nuts and bolts, when we talk about containing experiences in objects, right? There, there is in fact quite a westernization, you know, that, that happens around that to think about quickly, let's put this in a fridge in a box somewhere away in the dark forever. And then it will be there and then we will have saved our history but i think there's a there's another fundamental flaw in what we try and do when we're thinking about locating trans lives in the past and that's that we're going through the wrong archival tree process gender and sexuality were not separated out yeah. right men men who were arrested for same sex were arrested for doing the wrong thing with their cops with the wrong gender right it was entwined with sexuality and, and gender were one and the same conversation and we've been so obsessed with separating them out when we archive them this goes in this box and this goes in this box and here's where this life fits and here's where that life fits that now we put all this extra scrutiny on trans people going you can't say trans in the past the word trans didn't exist were there even trans people back then so if you take that approach then you're robbing us of our language to talk about ourselves through our own lenses for a start right so it's another form of linguistic erasure but but if you are really looking in the past for transness what you're looking for is gender nonconformity, and this is why lgbtiqa plus all sits together under one umbrella and they're not separate pools because they're not separate pools of our experience and i always say that the Museum of Transology is not a trans exhibition. It's an exhibition that should stand for the rights for people to, to find gender liberation for themselves, no matter who they are, right? Gender liberation is a fight that we should all be striving for and trying to unpack, to be, you know, to, to determine what gender means to us. And so I think that there's, there's problems with separating out sexuality and gender yeah. when we're trying to go back, right? And I think that the, the, the solution really for me going forward with building archives that represent trans lives that will be here for us to learn from in a hundred years time is to enable the people who want to be represented in it to curate yeah. their own stories, yes. to give yeah. them agency and not allow the institution to choose what they yes. collect. Yes. And so there's a very there's a really good example in the Museum of Transology, you know, we because we allowed everyone to, to, to donate what they wanted to donate, we got objects that were the same donated over and over. Now, in a museum, this you would never accept that as a curator. I'm a formally trained curator, you know, and in a museum would never do it because the most precious asset that we have is space, right? Space and labour. And so you don't collect two of the same thing necessarily because it's going to take up an extra box in the fridge and you're going to have to look after that and you're going to have to give it another number and it's going to have to be checked for humidity and, and, and. And so you collect one of things more often than not. Well, with the Museum of Transology, you should see how many bottles of testosterone we have got right however this is where it gets really interesting 
every single one of those little boxes of testosterone or those little packets of estrogen pills have a completely different story attached to them. They are representing something entirely unique to that person. And so what would have happened if a cisgender curator in a museum who comes from the traditional background went, I'm gonna do the right thing. I'm gonna build a trans collection. I'm gonna collect from trans people. And what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get a bottle of testosterone and a packet of estrogen pills. And I'm gonna go, some trans people take hormones. And that would be the label, right? That is not the story of taking hormones. And so we have, so we have a bottle that represents being becoming the father that they always wanted to be. We've got another bottle that's all about the fact that they were blocked from accessing the NHS to get access to the treatment that they wanted to self-determine they wanted. You know, so that's that's about the about medical access and the pathologization of trans people. We've got others about mental health, we've got this, we've got that. They're entirely different stories. So it's the story that the object tells not the story about the object. object. And that's the difference in non-institutional collecting and institutional collecting. That's yeah. the difference with you know, community-driven collecting. And I think actually long-term that we're going to see this period as a really interesting period of museology itself because it's disrupting what the word museum means, you know? And actually that's really, really interesting because like Jeremy says, our bodies are archives, but do you know what else are archives? our bedrooms, our nightclubs, our public toilets, you know, these are all archives. And so why aren't we randomly going around town during LGBTQ History Month? And I say that deliberately without the I in it because that's what it is. Why aren't we randomly going around town and putting up um, text panels everywhere in public and going, there was queer history here, there was queer history here, this toilet I fucked in, this toilet I did this in, you know, this is where I, that's, that for me feels like public protests and the, and the power of I, taking archives I, out there queerly, you know. I totally agree. I I think that the more that I'm LGBT history mainstreams itself, it's the more it either becomes cleaned and palatable and sanitised. And then there's then a question around whose queer histories is then excluded from it. And then actually, usually it is people who I'm occupy those spaces that you are talking about because basically actually i would always say actually you know while i'm out about my sexuality i'm marginalized around my sexual practice because actually that's the bit that's always excluded from a lot of our conversations around the archive and history and that's a really kind of i think for me it's it's key that we bring in you know the cruising around the toilets the dark rooms into the conversation and then I, I think actually they're not comfortable conversations to have. It's actually, people don't want to talk about the body, <laughs> actually. Yeah, and there's and it's interesting because I, I still think, you know, that, that that's that's what's happening with this collection for the Museum of Transology is we're getting these linear singular narratives when actual fact where we need to get closer to is working out how people who are trans can be publicly safe with their bodies. Yes. At the moment, it seems to be the, the conversation we're having about trans is so stuck in the right to exist, which means actually what we're doing with our conversations about transness is just talking to transphobes, you know, in this, in this narrative of justification. Do you know what I don't do? I never respond to transphobia on social media. I never engage, like, I don't have enough time 
or energy or even just life. You know, I want to live a good life to engage with that. You know, what I'm interested about transness, that where I want to push these conversations is, is how can they overlap with potentiality? How can they overlap with body liberation? How can they overlap and get messy? And I'm not interested in either compartmentalizing yeah. gender, you know, like these, these, I don't feel like we're having the right conversation so much of the time, you know, being I agree. inside I agree. our communities. I think our conversation's off topic. Yeah. I mean, I think- I, I the, totally agree. Yeah, totally agree. so much here I want to uh, ask you both more about, because I think, well, there's a few things, I suppose, as you just said there, EJ, you know, the conversation about transness, as so much of its energy is taken up just defending the right not even the right defending the fact that trans people exist you know here i am it, yeah. <laughs> that's it yeah, conversation. yeah exactly now, moving on and and so it's still you know and and because of that it is still it still feels radical just to say trans isn't new you know trans people have been around forever you know only and i think you, you saw that a lot with kind of gay histories through the 20th century you know that of course you know it's really powerful to find yourself in the past you know particularly when you've been told you know you've got no precedent that your existence is unnatural or unwelcome and that's why I think, you know, finding those kind of sort of lineages of like, oh, you know, there was lesbians in the 16th century, there was, there was gay people right through history, has been really important politically within like gay liberation, et cetera. Yeah. But I feel like now, like, you know, that's not radical necessarily, you know, and, and that's in some ways- Yes, but I'm- readings. And actually now we're like, what about what we have to say about like, what, what's radical now for queer people now, you know, and how do we get at that? Ajami, sorry, you were gonna say something. I'm gonna add that we're still talking about white gay history. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, Western yeah. history. And so then, once again, actually, we have to look at this thing called queerness across time and space. Yeah, right? Yeah. And, and like, I can really get into the nuance. Because, you know, once again, we're still talking about white gay history. Usually, that's the lens that kind of people start from. And then they bring in black and brown folks here somewhere to make it diverse or inclusive. But actually... It's the very notion of that history that needs to be questioned because actually I think that we always have to start from the place of where are we looking from and what are we look look looking to, to to have the conversation on history and heritage and archive. And for me, I'm saying actually the lens is still too small. I think yeah, think about queer as a methodology. Um, you, you point out there is that it's not just about what history do you tell? It's about questioning all the assumptions of any kind of historical method, methodology, historical lens, and that extends beyond kind of public histories, obviously extends within academia, within any notion that we have of a particular order of, of sort of time, space, the, the kind of, the way in which we think about the, the history of queerness. And I think that again is something that for a long time was trapped in that story of kind of, you know, repression, through to liberation, and that's quite a sort of linear narrative. Again, it's very white, it's very cis. It's a particular story of, 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 of the story, yeah, of, of gay liberation, really, which is a really important story. But now I think we're at a point where, um, as you both said, there's, there's so much more going on, there's so many different directions we need to take this, and the, the, the conversation, it's mad that we're still having these same yeah. conversations. I, <laughs> LGBT History Month in yeah, 2021, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know? I think that you've always had multiple queer histories existing in all kinds of ways, right? Yeah, right. And, you know, once again, it's whose history gets excluded from the conversation. A Black social culture history in the UK has excluded around LGBT history. Your wider white LGBT history has excluded 
a black and brown queer history. And then your national narrative has also excluded and black and brown queers. And so really, I think that sometimes I am then resistant to get into the institutions or whatever around certain things. It was actually, maybe this is now my old head right here. I think sometimes and you can do as much queer work in those spaces as much as you want. The power structure still maintains itself, right? And there's a way that actually queerness can be co-opted right here, but the power structure is still intact and there may be more embedded because actually some of them, they just tick their boxes, we've done it. And so, and so it's actually, I think that if folks are happy for that four weeks, I'm like, we need to be happy every day forever and then not funnel everything into this one month because actually the power structures are still intact and it's beds it needs queerness to do its work on one level, actually. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm getting more and more interested in collecting as a form of activism, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but in a way that something that I haven't focused a lot on before. I've done a bit of it, but not a lot. And, and this is what's on my mind at the moment, is teaching people more in our community about conservation of objects yes so that they can have practical skills about how to look after the things that they've got in their homes i agree they want to pass on to community members as they get older to still have and and as a as a form of 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 community giving as almost a, a ritual and 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 a rite of passage as we age and get older in our communities that we can have some events that are driven to handing over a flyer to ensure trust it to the next generation and that it could almost be ritualized particularly through the process of learning better how to look after paper you know the British Library at the moment well for years now a couple of years now has been spending a whole lot of money I think if I remember correctly it's something like 40 mil preserving their cassette anything that's on tape because they reckon that there's about 10 years left before the tape and the, mag- the magnetic fields on them disrupts enough that you won't be able to listen to those sound effects anymore, right? Well, think how important mixtapes are in queer history. Oh, my God. I've got- right? Think how important. Has anyone in our community ever talked about the fact that they're not going to work in 10 years' time? I mean, that scares yeah. the living daylights out of me because it's not just the music that's on there that's important. It's every click that represents a moment of love and thought that pauses for too long before it moves on to the next one. You can tell I'm a white boy, yeah, because my DJing's so bad, yeah. Mine <laughs> <laughs> is no different, trust me, honey. <laughs> it's an absolute stereotype. But it's, it's not I, about white boys uh, only, honey. Trust me, honey. I'm, a, yeah, I'm probably no. worse. <laughs> stereotype because it's you and I love you. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that there's there's something actually about this idea that we can learn better how to look after our flyers, how to look after our photographs, how to how to make them last longer. And we could do that as a community in group situations and learn that. And we could also hand over. That's something that could happen as an event at LGBTIQ plus history, but to be a passing of the baton, you know? I totally agree because actually there was then a question around who chooses what goes into the archive. And so that actually how then do, do I we then account for the cassette tapes, 
the love letters and those intimate things that we've kept forever. I mean, T-shirts, notes or cigarette packet, jock straps. Yep, yep. All that kind of stuff, actually. It's, that's the stuff that I think that we do need to be considering is, it's because we always look through the lens of the activists or that social facing work and we then forget actually people's other ways that they are in the world and so many of those intimate things that might not appear to have any social cultural value probably has more value. It's because you get a deeper insight into who people are. Yeah, and if we hand them on to each other, then it's also history in the making. It's yes. not this idea that history starts and stops. And on this day, we were liberated. And then the next day, we lived happily ever after. You know, like it actually could be something that is this, this process of pursuing who we are in intergenerational conversations that enable us to be circular in our history making rather than going along this straight line from the beginning to it, the end. Yes. You know? I think that there is a danger to think about history as this, almost a straight line. It, because actually history doesn't work that way. It never did. Precisely. Right. I mean, and I think exactly what we what you described that you Well, did. history is that we talk about histories that, that happen simultaneously. Precisely. And they, space, and they yeah. intertwine, yeah. And they, yeah. They, they, they're, they're messy and it's very... I, and I, I think, EJ, I love that idea. I think that of, of almost being like, actually, we don't even, you know, we think we need the institutions because they've got, you know, th these particular heritage practices, practices, they've got the temperate basements where you can keep things actually, you know, that those, those kind of skills, we can workshop those within the community, you know, you can, you don't need the institution there to, to, to utilize those things. And I think that's radical, that's, like there's something radical about maybe that. Maybe that's what we do use the institutions for. Maybe that's what we ask them to do. We can't write off that there's loads of really wonderful people yes. 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 doing fantastic work who do want to radicalize them, who do want to skill share, who are trying to reshape them. And I know there's a different conversation between abolition and reformation. I know there is, and there's just some people that are never going to feel safe being in the museum. But there are people who are highly skilled and have yes. very good intentions in museums. I totally agree. I will stand up for them, you know. And getting maybe that's what we should be drawing on them for more is to teach us, is to skill share with us. Maybe that's what we should be asking for rather than just being included on those terms within those systems. Maybe it's that we should be asking them to run workshops for us on paper conservation, <laughs> you know? Like, and I think you're right. Something and else also- and, So you go, Jeremy, go, go, go. And also to pay us properly for the work and the labor. Yeah, I, I think also that, that idea of like what well, takes us kind of cyclical back to, you know, almost where we started. So what is a museum? What's a kind of queer archive, et cetera, is that the way in which that kind of skill sharing is happening, the way in which queer histories are being told and shared is not just happening in the kind of traditional institutions, you know, that we can critique. But, you know, for example, like at the Royal Vauxhall Tavern, where you have the Queer History Club that, that Ducky does that, right? I think you've been involved, DJ. And there you can see that's about kind of history as a kind of, you know, the practice of history, the sharing, the telling, the retelling, the mythologies, this sort of in yeah. this space that's also very loaded with nightlife, with bodies, with a, with a way of understanding queerness. And I think that's a really cool way of, of seeing how those sort of the skills of history, if, if, if you will, I suppose, can don't just belong in a museum or in, you know, that they can they can operate in different ways and in different places. It's really interesting that you mentioned that, that that Ducky Queer History Club. So it's part of the Princess Project that we've been running looking for 18th century Georgian history in London. And it's been the most magical project. So been going into 
museums with a bunch of ducky queer volunteers and they are queer do you know what I mean and and there's like you know 10 of us for example depends on how many they can let in at once and I arrange with the curators at the at the institutions at the museums pieces that I'd like to see that aren't on display and they have them out for us and we go behind the scenes and we look at objects and things that have been chosen and so First of all, that there's a process of, of radicalization there for, for the museum because here come all these queers into their quiet spaces out the back to see things that aren't on display. And the curators, I'm doing the research to find those objects. So the curators are like, oh, I've never thought about that one through that lens before, or I haven't thought. So it's opening up the collections to the curators as well. But yeah. then we do that process. So that's sort of one step of it. And then the next step is we take it back to the RVT and we have them on stage as part of queer history clubs. And we call it putting the pub back into public history, right? So, and that's what it's all about. It's we go in, we get the history, we take the photos, we're noisy rabble rousers in there. We have the most fascinating conversations, like just so fascinating. We went and saw the um, Chevalier Dion prints, a lot of prints that aren't on, on, on show and Chevalier Dion with French, genderqueer spy yeah. in Georgian London that really captured the fascination, the public's fascination. And really it was a spike that we can probably mark as maybe sort of really the first public incarnation of the rise of transphobic press in the UK yeah. on, on yeah. grabbing mass imagination, right? Yeah. But what was so extraordinary, we went in there and we saw the prints and one of the prints that was chosen in a folder right at the back, was it chosen? It was just in a big folder of prints engravings they were, was the Chevalier Dion, after they passed away, the mickle slab with their skirt lifted up and it was a biological drawing of their genitalia. Even after they were dead, they couldn't protect their privacy, right? And they'd fallen out of the public imagination two decades earlier and still it's like, quick, they're dead, let's lift up their skirt and see what they really yeah. have. Yeah. And there was the bunch of us looking at it just devastated. Yeah. Then we went on to talk about what's going to happen to us when we you know if we got Alzheimer's, there's no public health care for trans people, there's no training for care workers, there's no like we could be equally as exposed. Yeah. Yeah. So it yeah. came back to our lives and our yes. current worries. Mm -hmm. And then we went from there and we found the Chevalier's grave, which is just behind St Pancras in a park there. And next to the Chevalier's the, the monument, not sorry, it's not their grave, but it's a, it's, a, it's a public monument that has their name on it. And so we had this kind of little queer spiritual moment mm -hmm. where we held hands and we were like, we're sorry, we looked at you nude, we didn't mean to, we didn't know that was there, but we're here for you now kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And right next to it, there's a little church and you can go into the church and pay for your little candle and you can light candles and leave a message. And it's for people who have passed. And the vicar or the priest reads out on a Sunday, anyone whose name is left in there. So we queered the church because we left the Chevalier's name in there. And we knew the priest was gonna have no idea <laughs> whose name they were reading out on Sunday. Nice. But it went this full circle of yeah. us going, doing the research, going to the museum, going to a public space. It got spiritual and ritualized and then to the candle lighting and then we took photos and then we took that back to the pub and we shared it with our community that for me is what yeah. it's all about right? i agree totally right. 
Yeah, that's that's radical queer history. I think it absolutely. I think, and I I I know as you say that quip kind of putting the pub back in public history. In a way, obviously, it's 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 a lull. You know, we're talking about the RBT, but actually, that's I think that for me that really sums up something that's like the pub or you know this idea of like queer spaces. You know, we had another episode on queer spaces. The importance of a queer space that's for queer people where we use our bodies, use our voices, make ourselves known, and you know, putting having this kind of idea of sort of. Um, a historical process and, and engaging with archives in a kind of, I suppose, a slightly more formal way, but being like, now we're not doing it there. We're going to do it in our spot, you know, and, and we'll do it our way. And then that informs um, the way in which we then display our own community history within our own queer spaces. And I think, yeah, there is something radical about that. And, and especially the way you're kind of sort of utilizing some of the resources and, and artifacts yeah. from institutions, but kind of repurposing it in, yeah. in, in, certain, in yeah. a certain way. That's why I think every moment is an archival moment. Every act is an act of history. And so actually, if we think then about, I mean, the archive as in the now as well, actually, and we begin to rethink the very notion of the archive even further. I started once actually, everything is this archival moment. It's a moment of history. So basically, for me, I mean, queers, queers don't come into history. We're already born into history. And so actually we are then already in the middle of this thing. So actually that's where we need to then start from and then make all kinds of moves. EJ, I love the idea that kind of, kind of what, what I'm hearing is that the archive as motion or as movement, it's moving. And that for me is then actually key to rethink, thinking the archive as not this static thing. That's really interesting saying it like that, Ajami, because that's that's what the magic was. It was going out and going, we've been devastated by seeing this stuff. It feels invasive and horrible and scary for us still today. Yeah. Let's, as a group of queers, find a way to work our way through this grief and fear and pain that we have surrounding this moment. And let's do it on another level, in a public space that's free and hold hands and remember and, and get far more ritualistic about yes, it, far yes. more yes. spiritual and feel it inside yes. us and go, no, we can talk back to this. Yes. We talk back yes. to Chevalier and we are here for you, yes. just yes. like we're here for each other. And it just... It just became, I, I mean, I just literally will never forget it. There is just not a way of describing how magic it was. Yes. And then once again, it means then what is front and centre is our bodies. <laughs> yeah, sure. Exactly. Yeah. I think you're exactly right, right back it, there. It's flesh, it's skin, yeah. it's warmth. It's the other ways that we also are in the world mm-hmm. as queer folks. And so then once again... Up. Yes, and once again, the, the actual material body is front and centre. Yes. I think, I want to, I mean, I don't want to, but I should I start <laughs> to kind of round us up a little bit. And I think actually Adele did a, an excellent job there. That idea of the motion and, and the motion and emotion, in a sense, that if that's how we're engaging with past. And that's then not just about, you know, engaging with a kind of cold, dead history. But as you said, EJ, it's very much about kind of living conversation. You can talk back to the archive and that's like, really there's something magical about that and um the archive also talks back to you yes exactly yeah yeah, yeah. and and precisely i think that's that's exactly so so what i want to ask then i guess is i mean it's Stuart hall i think i I mentioned him again because he wrote that great piece about archiving said 
you know, similarly that, you know, historical archives are not historical kind of objects that are passive, that they're in active dialogue with the questions of the present, right? So I want to ask you to finish both of you, you know, what you think the sort of the future, I guess, of queer public history in, in as far as what are the questions that you're kind of asking now? What are you sort of asking of the archive? And what is that conversation that is the, the now moment of queer public history, which will inform, which will form part of the archive itself as we move forward, but it's, it's, it's it, the archive is, is for now as much as it's about the past and the future. What are the questions you're asking now and where, you know, where do you, what are you excited about with queer public history? I think for me, there is a question around kind of not what kind of archives I will make, but what kind of archives will make of me. So then once again, actually, it's the archive, I think that's actually constructing a lot of the ideas that I'm kind of engaged with. Um, and so really, I'm, I think for me, I, I actually hope that a lot of the future ideas around the archive see the archive as something as living and vibrant. It's got its own energy, it's matter, it's alive, it's sexy, it's dirty, it's messy, and the queer archives are there to be in conversation with other queer archives and to contest other queer archives at the same time as well. And so really actually, it's a how then do we then hold all, all, all of those kind of tensions and the archive will do what it does as well. <laughs> so then once again, <laughs> it will take me where it takes me because, you know, I think that it's me engaging with the archive allows me to try and ask other questions of this thing that seduces me. It's exciting and frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as it should be, though, as it always perpetually should be. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. EJ, what are you... Finish yourself, round us off with some... Round us off with some pearls, uh, bit, some pearls. Uh, I, I don't Pearl, know. EJ I, pearls. You were just in a jam. EJ think, does pearls. EJ <laughs> does pearls. Go, go for it. <laughs> uh, I, think, I think for me, I'm deeply concerned with museuming what's queer. I'm, I'm deeply concerned that we are replicating the mm -hmm. same collecting practices that led us to have this mistake of that that is a singular perspective that that for me is not what queer is and I think that to challenge it we we have to put transness and brownness and blackness center stage and intersexness because for me that's where the answers for potential lie right because they disrupt these perspectives that we have that we have been forced into by the narrow inst narrow institutionalization mm. that is colonial collecting. The legacy is writ large. So I'm, I'm building our own collections, looking after our own collections better and handing them on through our own communities yeah. in a public gesture for me feels like that's that for me is when I start to get excited and feel like mm. there's that spark of magic around it. It always has to come back to communities and talking on our terms and and enacting our queerness, you know. I want to dance around a room and then hand someone 30 years younger than me my favourite flyer before I kick the bucket, you know. Well, I mean, I, I want to do that too. I think uh, yeah. that's it's a beautiful image and I, I think it's a radical way of thinking about queer public history. So uh, Ajamu and EJ, thank you so, so much. Uh, this was brilliant. I've really, I've really loved talking to you both. And I, yeah, I feel energized and uh, yeah, kind of reflective, but, but excited, as you said, and that's, that's a good feeling to have, I think. So thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much.
Many thanks to Ajamu X and E.J. Scott for taking part in the podcast. To learn more about the Museum of Transology, go to museumoftransology.com. And to see some of Ajamu's work, go to ajamu-studio.com. Please visit our website, historyworkshop.org.uk. You can find us on Twitter at HistoryWO and on Facebook and Instagram as History Workshop. This is the History Workshop podcast. I'm Mary Beth Hamilton. Thanks for listening.